Holy Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Our gospel reading for this morning is important for at least two reasons. Number one, this feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four gospels. So for that reason alone, it, it should be important. But secondly, and most importantly, in this miracle, Jesus is teaching the church an important lesson. And I think the church today needs to hear this more than ever before, that Christ alone is what we have to give to the world. And, and Christ alone is what the world really needs, whether it realizes it today or tomorrow or the next. Christ is what it needs, nothing else. Roman numeral one in your sermon outline, what do the following have in common? A murdered prophet, that would be John the Baptist, he's mentioned in the first part of our lesson, verse 13a. Uh, verses one to 12, by the way, record the death of John, the murder of John, he's beheaded with a sword because of Herodias, the wicked wife of Herod Antipas. So what does this murdered prophet have in common with the crowds in our gospel reading for today who are seeking Jesus? And at first glance, it doesn't seem that they have much in common at all. Because on the one hand, John is beheaded. On the other hand, the crowd is healed and fed supernaturally by Jesus. And when you stop and think about it, it may not seem fair at all. Could not the one who healed and fed the multitude have saved his own prophet from beheading? You can't help but wonder, why is Jesus so merciful to some and seemingly less so to someone else? Why? Why the difference? And of course, we're not given the answer <laughs> because it's really asking the wrong question. The question is not, how does John differ from the crowd that Jesus shows mercy to? Because John doesn't really differ from the crowd at all. There's no difference in reality in how Jesus treats John who undergoes beheading and the crowd which is healed and fed by Jesus. There's no difference because the crowd itself is not exempt from death either. The crowd itself will eventually die. They will not escape death. Every one of them will go to the grave the same as John. So the question is really not how does John differ from the crowd. The, or the right question is what does John have in common with the crowd? And that brings us to letter C, the answer. What does John have in common with the crowd? The answer is Jesus. What they have in common is Christ. They have in common the one who matters most. And, and when you have Jesus, you have everything 
regardless of how or in what way or when you may die. When the sword came down on John's neck, he already had everything he needed. He already had everything that he required. When you face death, you have already been given everything you need. When you have Jesus, you have everything. In Roman numeral two, Jesus's patience is exemplary. It's remarkable. His disciples are clearly upset with him, and they, they even speak disrespectfully. Look at verse 15 of our gospel reading. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Notice, they send the people away from Jesus when the people have a need. That's odd, isn't it? And by the way, that's a command. I don't know of any other place in the Gospels where the disciples speak this way to Jesus. They don't even call him Lord here. They just issue a command. They take it upon themselves to remind him where they're at, to remind him what hour of the day it is, and to remind him that perhaps he should be doing something different than he's now doing. And that takes a lot of nerve. And does it remind you of anyone you may know? Have you ever told the Lord what you think he ought to be doing instead of what he's actually doing? I don't know, I'm just asking. Letter A. His church relies more on its abilities than on his abilities or on him. They rely on themselves more than they rely on Jesus. The church thinks it knows better than Jesus what he ought to do. And it's not unlike us. We depend on ourselves to get things done instead of depending on the Lord. Why? Because, well, if you're like me, your tendency is to trust yourself more than you trust him. Letter B, his church is more aware of its needs than it's aware of Jesus. The needs loom large. Jesus isn't even, isn't even on the screen as far as they're concerned. When a need arises, such as how to feed 5,000 people, the disciples react as if Jesus is not even there they ignore him. It's like he doesn't even exist. He's not in the picture. And so I would ask you, is that true of you? Do you ever act like Jesus isn't in the picture, like he doesn't exist? I do at times. When facing an overwhelming problem, do you neglect to pray? Do you act as if Christ is nowhere around? Just asking. You know, if I were Jesus and if I were treated in this way, I think I would feel a little offended. But Jesus doesn't take offense. Jesus takes charge. Not only does he take charge, but he chooses to minister to the multitude through the very disciples who've just disrespected him. 
And he will not minister to the multitude without those disciples. He will employ them, come what may. That's how loyal he is to them. Whatever disrespect they may show him, he bears it. He forgives it. Just as he daily bears with us and forgives whatever disrespect we may display toward him because he's already taken it all away at the cross. You are forgiven. It's a done deal. And you are forgiven more sins than you've got. That's how expansive and overflowing his mercy really is. Letter C. His church is, nevertheless, employed by him. That's the point we're making. Despite our weakness and our failure, he does not cast us aside. He continues to employ us in serving the world. It is an honor to be at his side, to be in his employ. He doesn't let us go. Roman numeral three. Jesus' giving is abundant, it's overflowing. Letter A, they end with more than they begin. The leftovers are more than the startovers, or whatever you'd call what you began with. And letter B, overwhelming need plus underwhelming resources. And by the way, have you ever been there? Ever felt like there's an overwhelming need and you have underwhelming resources? Well, with Jesus, that equals overflowing abundance. It equals Jesus himself. Christ is not just the giver of gifts. He is the gift. He's not a means to an end. He's the end itself. St. Paul wrote this of Jesus, that Christ is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. That is to say, when you have Jesus, you have everything. Roman numeral four, application. Letter A, all the church, all that the church has to give to the world is Jesus. And when the world has Jesus, it has everything. And I mean everything. But what if Jesus is not what the world wants? What if Christ is not what the world happens to be shopping for? Do we change our message? Do we morph into something else that we're not? And the answer is no. If Jesus is not what the world seeks, we don't do the world any favors by substituting something else for him and offering that. When we do that, when we offer a substitution in the place of Christ, we're deceiving not only the world, we're deceiving ourselves. The church is not called. We are not licensed to give the world anything but Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now the church today can do many wonderful things, and it does. Building hospitals and schools, gymnasiums, early childhood centers, uh, internet cafes and coffee shops, rock climbing walls. The church uh, today becomes a parks and recreation department, among other things. 
Uh, the church advocates for social justice and so on. Many of these things are good in and of themselves, but if history is any guide, and we have a lot of history on these kinds of things, these well-intentioned ministries become an end in themselves and they eventually overshadow and even replace the one ministry that Christ has actually given to the church and that is the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of word and sacrament. So letter B, the most relevant ministry of all is not social ministry, as wonderful as that may be, or parks and rec ministry, but word and sacrament ministry. And the language in our gospel lesson for today, I don't know if you caught it or not, but the language of our gospel lesson strongly reflects the language of the Lord's Supper, and commentators down through the millennia have zeroed in on this. The feeding of the 5,000, I, I want to make very clear, is not the Lord's Supper, but it points forward to it. It anticipates it. You see, in both the Lord's Supper and in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus does the very same things. He takes the bread, he looks up to heaven, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. Moreover, both the Lord's Supper and the feeding of the 5,000 are miraculous meals. Just as Christ multiplies the loaves and the fishes, so he multiplies in this meal that we offer here his life-giving body and blood for our forgiveness. In fact, in early Christian artwork, the Lord's Supper was most commonly uh, depicted as loaves and fishes. My friends, in our gospel reading for this morning, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you have far more to give to the multitudes than five loaves and two fish. You have me. Give me to them. Jesus would say the same to the church today. You have far more to give to the world than simple bread and wine. You have me in, with, and under the bread and the wine. My very body and blood given and shed for you. The same body and blood given and shed at the cross is somehow in this meal. Don't ask me how. I just work here. But we believe his word and we take it to heart. And just as the Lord fed the multitude in the wilderness, so he feeds his church today in the wilderness of this world with the very same body and blood that he gave then. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's sad to say, but, but I fear that some ministers and some Christians today look at the Lord's Supper in the same dismissive way that the disciples in our gospel lesson looked at those five loaves and two fish. And they wonder, what can these few simple things do for all the people out there? What can they do? But my friends, these few and simple things are actually Jesus Christ himself. This is how he comes to us today. The Lord's Supper is not a what, it is a who. It is a person. It is Christ in the flesh. I actually read recently of, of a cathedral in England 
that built an amusement park ride in its sanctuary in order to bring people into the building. Another cathedral built a miniature golf course in its sanctuary to bring people in to the building. My friends, this is not converting the world to the church. It is converting the church to the world. And when we do things like this, when that becomes what we're known for, we have lost our way. We've lost our way. My friends, Christ himself will build his church, not through our bright ideas, but through his word and through his sacrament. The ministry of the church is to proclaim the Christ who died and rose for our forgiveness. That's it. And I believe that this book, the Bible, and the meal on that table, these are the means that Jesus has always intended to reach the world and to feed the world. And the ministry of the church is to prepare everyone for that, to prepare to, through preaching and through teaching to instruct the multitudes in who Christ is and how he comes to us today. We prepare people to receive Christ every Lord's day. And this is the rhythm of the Christian life. This is the rhythm of, of our lives together. Every Lord's day, Jesus should be poured into your ears through the preaching of the gospel. He should be poured into your mouths through the Holy Supper. My friends, Jesus really is all that we have been given to share with humanity. He's all that we have to give to the world. And as we see in the feeding of the 5,000, he is more than enough. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand. We continue with the order of service. On page 13, with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.